great. Matthew chapter 18, let's begin in verse 1 and read down to verse 20. We'll have it on the screen if you'd like to follow along, but hopefully you have your own Bible that you can follow in. Uh, We are reading from the New King James Version, and the Word of God reads as follows. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus called a little child to him, set him in the midst of them, and said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of offenses, for offenses must come, but woe to that man by whom the offense comes. And if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life lame or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into the everlasting fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell. The hellfire, excuse me. Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you, that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine and go to the mountains to seek the one that is straying? And if he should find it, assuredly I say to you, he rejoices more over that sheep than over the ninety-nine that did not go astray. Even so, it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear you, take with you one or two more, that by, mouth, by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven." Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Lord, thank you for the reading of your word. We are so grateful, Lord, to be able to gather as your children, as your sons and daughters here physically, as well as online. Lord, thank you for the technology to do that. And Lord, would you minister to us this morning? Would you meet us here in this place and in this time? Would you speak to us? Lord, there are many souls listening, and you alone have the power to take your word, the scriptures, and speak to us and apply it to us in such a way 
that it could be one voice to all of us or it could be different voices to each of us according to our need and according to what you have to say to us. Only you can do that, Lord. Would you do that now? In Jesus' name, amen. As we pick up here in chapter 18, I'd like to direct your attention back one verse to verse 27 of chapter 17, where we pick up on this idea of offenses, and that's going to be carried through what we just read. And you may recall last week as we were covering this back in chapter 17, verse 27, nevertheless, lest we offend them, go to the sea, cast in a hook, and take the fish that comes up first. And when you have opened its mouth, you will find a piece of money. Take that and give it to them for me and for you. Now, normally Jesus wasn't terribly concerned about offending people, especially the scribes and the Pharisees, because of their incorrect views of God and who he was and how they had misused and abused God's word. But Jesus did care about people. It's that it, certainly he, he cared about saving people. So in that situation, when he said to Peter, um, nevertheless, lest we offend them with respect to paying the temple tax, let's pay the temple tax. In other words, he was saying, let's pay the temple tax so that we can still minister to them, so that we still have a voice with them. Because in some situations, we may choose to do something or not to do something, and in such a way, we ruin our witness with someone or we cause them to sort of close off to us. So that thought is going to be carried through as we get a little bit further in dealing with the offenses. But as we come into what we have labeled here as chapter 18, he says in verse 1, Matthew that is giving us the writing, at that time the disciples came to Jesus saying, who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? That's always a question, isn't it? People want to know who's the greatest. People want to know who's the boss, who's the most prominent, who's the person in charge. And in this particular case, the disciples were, of course, concerned that among themselves, who might be one, you know, Jesus, would you give us the ranking of like one through 12? So we know who we are, who's who. And Jesus uh, has dealt with this now a couple of times from the disciples And here's what he did. He called a little child to him, set him in the midst of them, and said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. You remember the number of times Jesus was ministering in the midst of the scribes or the Pharisees or just to people. And he would do something that would, in a sense, sort of blow their paradigm. It would blow their mind it would upset their apple cart. And so as they are there asking Jesus, you know, Jesus, which one of us is going to be first? Now, Jesus, of course, had just come down off the Mount of Transfiguration. He had taken, as he typically did when he went off and did something special, he took Peter, James, and John. So they probably naturally thought one of the three of them would be listed as number one. And Jesus, of course, has no favorites. He shows no favoritism. The word of God tells us that God is not partial to any man. Jesus called a little child to him and set him in the midst. So wherever they were, probably most likely in a home, many speculate that this was Peter's home in Capernaum where this took place. 
And he called a little child over. Hey, come here. And one of the things we can certainly note is that Jesus uh, had a relationship with children and children liked him. And that child came to him. And he, I can imagine Jesus kind of taking the child up on his knee and maybe turning the child around facing out as he's teaching. And his typical rabbinical positions being seated and teaching people in a home. And he said, assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. You may recall in John chapter 3, Jesus said to Nicodemus, unless you're born again, Nicodemus, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Here, Jesus using another analogy to say something very similar, unless you are converted. The word converted means to turn around, to turn, to turn your course of conduct from whatever it is to Jesus or to change one's mind. Now that word, it's a very different Greek word than the word for repent. The word for repent is metanoia, but it means very much the same thing. It means literally to change your mind, to change your course, to change your direction. So Jesus is saying here, unless you become as little children, and we have to understand what is he meaning here when he says becoming like a little children, a little child, excuse me. And I was thinking about it and just kind of working through it, and I think there's a difference between becoming childlike and being childish. To become childlike, and these are some of the qualities that you can probably think of more, to become childlike is to become innocent in how you view people and how you think. Most of us either have had children or have seen little children, And one of the things we love about interacting with little kids is just their simplicity, their honesty, their innocence. And often they're very forward. They they see something and they just ask a question. They don't think about who's around. They don't think about the conditions and the circumstances. They just are. They just be. They're simple. They have imagination, they dream. Often little kids are very generous, aren't they? Hey, can I have one of your Cheerios? Sure, here, take the whole bowl. I love how little kids express love, how they'll come up so often and just give you a hug or do something that just tells you how much they love being with you. So becoming like a little child, and I believe that Jesus is referring to specifically their trusting nature and how they so quickly and easily trust Whereas we, as adults, as seasoned people, we're a little more skeptical, we're a little more cynical, we're a little bit slow to trust, aren't we? When we meet someone new, it takes us a while to develop that trust. Whereas the quality of being childish would be, uh, as you know, again, words that I think would describe childish, being immature, being selfish and self-centered, Throwing temper tantrums and acting out when you don't get what you want. Reacting to the word no in a visceral way. Being bratty and undisciplined. Being juvenile. Being petty and fearful and spoiled and impatient. So our Lord does not call us to be childish. He calls us to be childlike. And one of the things we need to understand as adults is How do we allow our minds and our hearts and our opinions to be formed 
and to be influenced. Where do we get our information as we're forming an opinion or a view about something? I think more importantly, how do we think about things? How do we see the world? Where does that come from? Where do we derive those views from? And so Jesus now dealing with the, the pridefulness and the uh, self-centeredness of the disciples says, unless you become like a little child and you become converted. In other words, that our faith should become childlike. Trusting in God. Depending upon God. Yes, asking God our questions. But leaning upon him, having a simplicity with respect to our lives in Christ. Paul said, I think this is in 2 Corinthians 11, where he said, lest you be deceived and you be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. That's what it should be like for us, the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. And so when he says that we should be converted, that we should be saved, if you will, that we should be born again, that we should become like a little child in our faith. Our faith is not bitter. Our faith is not complex. Our faith is not jaded. Our faith simply is. It is a trusting faith that looks to God as our heavenly father. You know, a little child doesn't wonder if their parents are going to take care of them. A little child just knows that the parents will take care of them. Verse four, therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. The word humble or humility simply means to take the lowest place. So that means that there's no pretense in who we are and that we have no problem being second or third or hundredth in line. What is the definition of humility? I think it's always best if we can allow the scriptures to do that. So that first scripture in Philippians chapter 2, we'll pull it up on the screen, but if you'd like to turn there, Philippians chapter 2, this is the definition of humility through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind, this way of thinking, be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, thinking about other people before yourself. That's not normal. That's not natural. But I believe what the passage is telling us here in Matthew, what Jesus is telling us, is that a sign of the converted heart is a person who thinks this way. Uh, back in Philippians 2.5, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of of the cross. And here's what God did for our Lord as a result of his humility. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, 
that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So the definition of humility really is found there in Philippians chapter 2 as we just read it. No selfishness, not thinking of yourself, having a lowliness of mind to esteem others is better than yourself. Having been brought up in the South and just spent uh, some time there a couple of weeks ago, I was refreshed by the fact that down there everybody holds the door for everybody else. And there's almost this comical, after you, no, after you, no, please, after you, I insist. And I believe that kind of attitude is the way we are to think about other people. Not just about something as simple as a courtesy of holding a door, but about how we take care of everyday life, how we drive, how we serve food to one another, coming in late and seeing that there's virtually no food left or there's one roll left and you're like, oh, I'm gonna get it because I didn't get one. Well, but allowing others to take it. Hey, maybe someone else would like it. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. You see, the humble person, like our Lord Jesus, is a servant. The humble person is a person who lives to serve other people. Their first inclination is to serve where there's a need. Find a need and meet it. And part of that is learning to see the need. When we're in a group of people, there's always a need. There's always somebody who has something that they need help with, or there's some way that we can come alongside someone. And maybe a good way to visualize this is, imagine someone, You maybe you're playing a sport, and they twist their ankle, and they fall down, and they can't walk. Well, a couple of people come alongside, and they put their arms over their shoulders, and they help that person walk and get to a place that they can rest and heal. That kind of idea, being a servant. Someone wrote, by nature, all of us are rebels who want to be celebrities instead of servants. I think that's very true. You see, true humility thinks of others first. And Jesus said, unless you become like a little child and humble yourself, and become, that's a sign, I believe is what he's saying, is a, a sign of your conversion. So learning to serve God and to serve others. Now there are many places in the scriptures we could go that talk about this, but here's a few. A little later in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus says, and whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. In other words, the way up is down and the way down is up. Romans chapter 12, verse 16, the Apostle Paul said, Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. When I read this verse every time, what, what comes to my mind is I'm in a crowd of people and I look for the one person who's sitting off in a corner by themselves. Associate with the humble. Go sit beside them. Talk with them. Associate with them. Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, 
humility, meekness, and long-suffering. In other words, the elect of God, a child of God, of the many qualities that should be ours, humility is one of those distinguishing qualities and characteristics. Another one found in 2 Timothy chapter 2, which sort of leads into our next section, says, but avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they generate strife. And a servant of the Lord, that's who we are, we're servants of the Lord, a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach and patient. And certainly he's speaking in particular here of those who are church leaders. In humility, correcting those who are in opposition. So humility comes into play in how we minister. So often in ministry and in the service of the Lord, we come in contact with people who are in error, whether those people are believers or unbelievers, and that we must come alongside and bring truth. You see, humility is never at the expense of truth. Humility honors truth. In humility, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. So humility is a part of our witness. It should be a part of who we are. It should be a part of our identity. How is our witness, how is humility displayed in our witness? Titus chapter 3, remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work. Now listen to Titus 3 too. You probably want to underline this in your Bible. To speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to men. How we speak of others is so important and it bears out our humility to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, to be gentle, showing all humility to all men. Two more of the classic passages that you probably know, James chapter four says, but he, that is God, gives more grace. Therefore he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You see, if you're coming before the Lord, like the disciples saying, Lord, which one of us is gonna be the greatest? Who's gonna be the boss? Who's gonna be in charge? Jesus says, well, not you, because you're asking. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Why would he say that? Because pride is rising up in our lives. When we ask those kinds of questions, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. And then he goes on and he says in verse 10 of James 4, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. And certainly the idea of humility can carry with it the idea of our posture before the Lord, getting on our knees before him, falling on our faces before him, because who we are in private influences who we are in public. 1 Peter chapter 5, likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. You see, even in life, there are relationships where we must be submissive to other people. 
bosses in the workplace, in the marriage, children in the family. There's always places where there's someone who's in charge simply because there has to be authority and structure. And if we submit to that willingly and we we show humility in how we submit ourselves, that's a witness. And in 1 Peter 5, 6, as he continues, he says, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him for he cares for you. I love the fact that those verses are coupled together because you see sometimes in submitting or humbling ourselves to another person, there may be fear in our lives. Well, that person is a mean person. That person is not worthy of submitting myself to. But you see, if we honor God, if we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, then God, like our Father, remember, faith like a child. God will take care of it. You see, God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, thus saith the Lord. He's going to come to, in a few minutes here, as we continue in this passage, this idea of learning how to trust God and let him take care of the difficulties that we face, the challenges, the struggles, the conflict. Matthew 18, 5, coming back to our passage, whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. So Jesus now drawing our attention back to how do we view people? How do we view those who are childlike in their faith? Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. So now he's talking about how people bring an offense, how we cause other people to sin, and no doubt he's talking about the little children, but Jesus is clearly here using the child as an analogy for a believer in himself who has that simple childlike faith who comes to him. And now how we cause other people to sin and to stumble. You see, we sin and we cause other people to stumble. And he says here, if you find yourself in that position where you are the one who is sinning in such a way to cause someone else to stumble or to, to, to stumble especially in their faith and their view of God and their understanding of God, he said it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. I think we understand that, but just to put it in perspective, there were two types of millstones that were commonly used in that day. There was the household millstone, which would be a five to 10 pound stone that was used just for grinding something, much like we have our little implements today in our kitchens to help us with our food preparation. And then there is what is called the donkey millstone, which this Greek word literally translated would be donkey millstone. And you've probably seen the animal on a harness, a big old stone in the middle. And being in New England, we see these things, right? With tons of mills. And you can, you've, if you've never seen one, I can tell you where you can go see one. But the, the, the giant hundreds of pounds millstones, that's the idea here. And he's saying, if you were the person who causes a little one to sin, it would be better for you rather than causing that child, that child of the faith, rather than causing someone to stumble in their faith toward the Lord Jesus, just go out to the middle of the sea, tie the millstone, not just a little bit of extra weight, a stone with hundreds of pounds around your neck and be drowned in the depth of the sea. 
I mean, we understand the, the analogy here, right? It's, it's huge. And he's saying that's how serious it is to offend or to cause someone to stumble in their faith. And he says, woe to the world because of offenses. Certainly there's plenty of offenses in the world. For offenses must come in this life. But woe to that man by whom the offense comes. The word woe, it's not a word Jesus uses a lot, but we're going to get a little bit later along here and he'll issue what are called the woes to the scribes and the Pharisees. But the word woe means grief or misery or disaster. So Jesus is saying, the one through whom an offense comes that causes someone to stumble in their faith, woe to that person. Now, while we're here, I think we need to take a look at two passages of Scripture. The first one will be Romans chapter 14. We'll have that up on the screen. Uh, But if you want to turn there, you're welcome to. We need to talk about this issue of what does it mean to cause someone to stumble. And in both of these situations that we're going to read about, Romans 14 and in 1 Corinthians 8, the part of the backdrop is what we eat and drink and how that causes people to stumble. So Romans chapter 14, verse 13, Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore. But rather resolve this not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. I know and I am convinced by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself, but to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Remember, Jesus gave a vision to Peter as he was on the rooftop of Cornelius' house, uh, Simon the Tanner's house, and in there he said as The unclean animals came down in that vision in that sheet. He says, there's nothing unclean. Do not call unclean that which I have called clean. So back in Romans 14, 14, but to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. The idea here is that there are people who are immature in their faith. Now the real question becomes as we read these passages is, Do I consider myself to be in that position of being the mature person? Or perhaps am I self-deceived and maybe I'm really in the position of a person who's causing offenses and causing stumbling blocks? We need to be careful here as we read this. Romans 14, 15, Yet if your brother is grieved because of your food, you are no longer walking in love. Do not destroy with your food the one for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let your good be spoken of as evil, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. Therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which one may edify another. There's that humility, thinking of other people. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for the man who eats with offense. It is good neither to eat meat nor drink wine, nor do anything by which your brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. Do you have faith? Have it to yourself before God. 
Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats because he does not eat from faith, for whatever is not from faith is sin. So what are some of the things we learn from this passage in Romans 14 about putting a stumbling block in front of a brother or sister in Christ? One of these little ones who has faith, as Jesus called the person. Well, in this situation here, Paul is dealing with meat sacrificed to idols. And he's looking at those who understand that before God, there are no gods. There's only one God. His name is God. His name is Yahweh. His name is Jehovah. And so when we come in that, in that culture to a meat market, and it happens to be a butcher who uh, worships or practices the black arts or use the meat and sacrifice to idols, there are those who would say, I will not shop there at that butcher because I know they do that. And their conscience would be offended if they bought meat there or if they ate that meat. But then... What about the situation of those who say, look, it doesn't matter. I'm not worshiping the devil. I'm not eating that meat saying, you know, all praise be to Satan. And I understand that all these things, they're of the Lord. They can sacrifice their meat to whomever they want, but there's only one God. So to me, it's no problem to buy that meat to eat that meat. And he's saying here, what do we do if we stumble a brother? Now, if we or play the situation out, we've invited some friends over for dinner. We may or may not know they have that view of meat sacrificed to idols, and it would be an offense to them. Yet we went to that butcher, and that's where we bought the meat. We invite them into the house, and then they say, hey, where'd you buy this meat? Oh, yeah, we got it at the place you don't like. Now we're, now we're having... We're having cereal for dinner, right? We're, we're eating something else. So he's saying that we should be aware of the things that might cause our brother or sister to stumble. Now, we are, I don't believe this means in any way we should walk around in fear, wondering what about all the little things that I might possibly do that might cause someone to stumble. But certainly we should be aware in the humility that the Lord has given us, that we don't unnecessarily address something or... or offer something that causes a brother or sister to stumble. Here's a more modern example. What about a Christian drinking alcohol? Can a Christian have a glass of wine or some form of alcohol? Well, the scriptures don't say anything about a a Christian can't have alcohol. It does say, of course, don't get drunk. Don't put yourself unduly under the influence of something else like alcohol. The Proverbs are filled with that kind of admonition. But what if I'm, as a believer, okay, now I'm, I'm Pastor Dean, I'm out at a restaurant, and I decide all of a sudden I wanna, I'm going to have a glass of wine with my meal. And one of you walks by, but maybe I'm not aware that in your past you were an alcoholic. Maybe I'm not aware that that's an issue for you, that you think a Christian shouldn't drink, and that's, that's your conviction. And now you're seeing me in that way, First of all, you're offended, but also, what if it goes the other way? What if you go, well, if it's okay for him, maybe I can do it. And now they fall back into their alcoholism. You see, I've put a stumbling block in their way. And so maybe what I want to do is to say, you know, yes, I have the freedom to have a glass of wine, 
But why would I do that if it's going to cause someone to stumble? In my humility and hopefully in my maturity as I'm growing in Christ, I understand that I don't want to go there because I don't want to cause someone to stumble. And so these are things that we need to think about and that we need to consider. And he says right there in the passage, Romans 14, 15, if your brother is grieved because of your food or whatever it may be, you are no longer walking in love. If I'm doing it knowing that it grieves them, then I'm not walking in love. Do not destroy with your food or your choice or your opinion on something the food for whom, with food, with your food, the one for whom Christ died. The kingdom of God is not eating and drinking or freedom of expression of opinion, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Well, let's, let's hurry along to the next one. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, similar idea, but he says some of these things in a different way. Now, concerning things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. Okay, I'm more educated than you. That's sort of what that's saying. And if anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, there's humility. This one is known by him. Therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is no other God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father of whom are all things. And we for him... And one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we live. However, there is not in everyone that knowledge, or if you will, that maturity. For some, with consciousness of, an, of the idol, until now eat it as a thing offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. So their understanding may not be as mature or, or de, as developed as yours, so... You have to be respectful of that. But food does not commend us to God, for neither if we eat are we the better, nor if we do not eat are we the worse. But beware lest somehow this liberty of yours becomes a stumbling block to those who are weak. So the issue is understanding who the weak believers are and not looking down on them, but being respectful in humility of where they are in their relationship with Christ. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols? And because of your knowledge, shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died? In other words, I have liberty in Christ. It's not my problem, it's their problem. But when you thus sin against the brethren... And wound their weak conscience. You sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. So that's what Jesus is talking about when he's talking about this issue of offending the weaker brother or sister. Now, Something that we need to think about, and I'm just going to leave it to you to pray and to think about how does this apply to me? How does this apply to us in our modern day society? 
I think what we've seen in the past couple of years with politics, with COVID, with all sorts of things, and by the way, we are free to have our own opinions on any particular topic. But the question is, is my right to my opinion and my point of view going to cause a stumbling block to someone else? I can have that opinion and believe what I want about politics or any of these other situations. But if my talking about it or if my expression of it now creates a stumbling block for someone else who is weaker in the faith and who may not be as informed or whatever it may be, maybe I want to refrain. Just as I might refrain from having that glass of wine in the restaurant and causing someone to stumble, maybe I want to refrain from expressing my you know, well-developed and informed views on various topics. It's just something that we should be aware of. Because what matters is that we know Christ, that we're marked by humility, that we're marked by the love of God, and that we care about people. Verse 8, if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life lame or maimed than having two hands or two feet to be cast into the everlasting fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell. Now, Jesus is not talking about literally cutting off your hand or plucking out your eye. It's a metaphor to help us understand the seriousness of sin. You see, someone has once said, and I agree with them, if we don't get crazy in the way that we deal with sin, then sin will get crazy in dealing with us. You see, sin is what caused the fall of Satan. Sin is what caused the fall of mankind. And sin, in our culture today, tell me this isn't true, is marginalized. It's, it's minimized. It's, well, it's not a big deal. You can live together before you get married. Who cares? You can choose your sexual preference and orientation. You can do whatever you want. You can watch whatever you want. You can go wherever you want. It's a free country. It might be, but as believers in Christ, you see, we have, by professing the name of Christ, we've said, I'm under the authority of this book. This is my life. This is my guide. I want my opinions and my, my values to be defined by the word of God. I don't want to define my opinions and my thoughts and my values by the evening news or by what I read on the internet or by my late, the latest book on the New York Times bestseller list. I want my views and my opinions to be informed by the word of God. Humility begins with self-examination and it continues with self-denial. Jesus was not suggesting that we maim our bodies for harming our physical bodies can never change the spiritual condition of our hearts. Rather, he was instructing us to perform spiritual surgery on ourselves, removing anything that causes us to stumble or that might cause others to stumble. The humble person lives for Jesus first, others second, and ourselves last. He is happy to deprive himself, even of good things, if it will help others in their walk with Christ. Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. 
In other words, it's not necessarily saying here that young little kids or those who are young in the faith may have a guardian angel, but just the understanding of the spiritual connection that we have and the purity of our faith that God desires. And he says, for the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. You see, Jesus came to save sinners. One life is valuable to God. What do you think if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray? Does he not leave the 99 and go to the mountains to seek the one that is straying? And if he should find it, assuredly, I say to you that he rejoices more over that sheep than over the 99 that did not go astray. Even so, it is not the will of your father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. God cares about one soul. You see, in our world, here's how we think. Well, I had a hundred, one wandered away, whatever. Isn't that how we so often think about people? Isn't that how we've come to think in our throwaway society about money and about stewardship? Stewardship is something that's become lost in our Christian society. God expects us to be good stewards, and he especially expects us to be good stewards with people's lives. Moreover, verse 15, if your brother sins against you, wow, has that ever happened? Anybody here ever been sinned against? Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone, and if he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you two or more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. This is a a famous passage. Perhaps for some of you, it's an infamous passage. And I am grateful for the opportunity to teach it because I've heard it misquoted and misapplied for so many years in churches. Here's the idea, just very simply as we read through this passage. Jesus is saying to us, if there's a brother or a sister who sin, okay, not offends us because of their opinion, not not because our feelings are hurt, but because it's a matter of sin. He says, keep the matter private if possible. Go to the person one-on-one, privately. Then if you need help from others, because you've gone to that person, and they refuse to listen, and they say, look, man, I didn't sin against you. You're just offended. You're just, just, you're just too sensitive. Well, then ask for help from others. Ask for help for, from some mediators, one or two other uh, trusted mature believers who can come alongside and help. And then he says, if that happens and the person still refuses to hear it, ask the church for help. You see, this is about sin. This isn't about winning an argument or a debate. And the point is, as he says here, to gain your brother or your sister back from a sinful position. So the point of what Jesus is telling us here is that we're in a situation, we're in a relationship in the body of Christ, whether it's in the local church or in the greater body of Christ, and a brother or sister literally sins against us. Remember, the the word sin means to fall short of the mark. It means anything that marks of the devil. It marks of the flesh. And if he will not hear... Take with you two or more. So you go to the person alone. You plead your case with them. And listen, because we've been talking about humility, we go in with humility. 
We don't walk in there loaded for bear saying, you were wrong and you hurt me, and we just come, blah, 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 blah. well, how often when someone's done that to you, have you been willing to listen to them because of the way that they've come at you? But we go before them with humility and we say, brother or sister, you said or did this thing, perhaps you're unaware. Maybe you're not even aware that you did this, but I just wanted to bring it to your attention. Now, our goal is not to make them say they're sorry. Our goal is to bring them under the conviction of the Holy Spirit so that if this was genuinely a sinful act, that they will repent before God. Remember what David said about his own sin with Bathsheba? Psalm 51, he says, Lord, against you and you only I have sinned. So again, this is not about me per se. But if this person has a habit, maybe even a pattern of sinning and hurting people, then we need to bring it to their attention and hopefully bring them, see the goal is to bring them to the Lord so that they might repent and that they might hopefully stop hurting people, not just me. But if he will not hear, take with you two or more that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. You see, there's always two sides, sometimes more to a situation. You know, too often, this is something we're all guilty of. We hear about something or we see something and we judge it. And we're like, well, that's the way they are. But do we know? I remember the story I read years ago. It was actually in a business book. But the, the man was t- talking about how we form our opinions and our views of other people. And there was this man who got on the subway in a city with his three kids and they're just unruly, out of control and the man seems to be sitting there in some kind of stupor, completely unaware that his kids are disturbing all the other people. They're running around, jumping on the seats and the other passengers are sitting there getting annoyed increasingly by the moment that this man is not taking any responsibility for his kids and finally one concerned passenger gets up and says, excuse me, sir, your kids are out of control. You need to do something. And the man goes, oh, I'm sorry. We just left the hospital and their mother just died and I've just been sitting here trying to figure out what what I'm gonna do. See, we don't know what's going on in someone else's life, do we? Do we? Do we understand all the circumstances in someone's life? So when we come to approach someone, we have to be careful. There are other mitigating circumstances there are other things we might need to take into account perhaps that person yes sinned but maybe they sinned because they're in pain and we need to bring the love of Jesus Christ to them there's so many aspects to this so coming in love coming in humility speaking the the truth in love is so important You see, and the point of bringing witnesses is we're bringing other faithful who are walking with the Lord, who are spirit-filled people, and who are going to be objective. They're not there to be my henchmen, to come and and stand up for me and defend me as I come to present my case so that I can win the argument and, you know, there's strength in numbers. No, no, these are people who love the Lord and who are there for the right reason to help that person, if indeed they're in sin, to repent and come to the Lord. They're there for the truth. It would be wrong for anyone to take Jesus' words here as a command to confront your brother with every sin they commit against you. The Bible says we should bear with one another and be long-suffering toward each other, yet clearly there are some things that we just cannot suffer long with and that we must address. 
We can say that Jesus gives us two options when our brother or sister sins against us. We can go to them directly and deal with it. Or we can drop the matter under Christian long-suffering and love and patience and bearing with one another. Other options, such as holding on to bitterness, retaliation, gossiping to others about the problem are not allowed. We must not let trespass rankle in our bosom. Now this is Spurgeon, so you can already hear the language here. We must not let trespass rankle in our bosom by maintaining a sullen silence, nor may we go and publish the matter abroad. We must seek out the offender and tell him his fault as if he were not aware of it. Perhaps he may not be. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. And that's the point. You have gained him in two ways. First, the problem has been cleared up. Perhaps you realize that he was right in some ways and, and he realized you were right in some ways. But the problem is resolved. Secondly, you have gained him because you have not wronged your brother by going to others with gossip and half the side of a dispute. Importantly, Jesus did not say that your brother brother must agree with you or immediately repent before you. At first, it is enough if he just hears you. How many times has someone approached you with something and you've had to go away and think and pray on it and maybe give it a little bit of time before you say, you know what? They were right. They had a point. You know, initially I was like, I'm not wrong. Last time I was wrong, it was 1980. No, we need to be open. My pastor told me, before he turned the church over. He said, even if someone comes to you and they come to you in the wrong heart, the wrong spirit, and they come blasting you, you know, maybe there's a grain of truth. Maybe there's something you need to hear. In verse uh, 17, and if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. So there's this process. You've gone to them privately. You've made every effort. You know, Paul says in Romans 12, I think it is, or 13, as far as it depends on you, seek to be at peace with all men. That's what you're doing. So you've done that. And it's, it's not going well. And now you're, you're bringing back a couple of other witnesses, brothers and sisters in Christ. You're having a conversation, a heartfelt conversation. We want to resolve this. We want to help you see the error of your ways, if you will. But we have to do that so, so gently. And as we do that, let's say they go, you know, you're, you're crazy, leave me alone. Now, he's saying, you have to put them out of the church. You have to tell it to the church. You have to bring the case before the church. Now, imagine this. Now, there are people who say, well, bring it before the congregation as a congregational meeting, or maybe the church just means the, the leaders or the elders or something like that. And, you know, th- this doesn't tell us either way. There's certain ways you could handle it. But you've brought it to the church, and whether it be the church leadership or the congregation, understand the gravity of the situation. If you're bringing someone's sin out into the public, and you're, you, I mean, your heart has to be right, doesn't it? The heart of those hearing the situation has to be right. I, I've had the unfortunate, not, not that I've been a part of it, but knowing brothers who have sinned, such as, you know, pastors who have fallen in, in you know, infidelity, and watching their leadership handle it and do it so well, and finally come to the place where they have to bring it to the church and tell them. 
I mean, it is a grave and a serious matter. People's lives are affected. God forbid that you ever have to hear that about me. But you understand that this matter is serious, right? It's serious before the Lord. This is not just trying to settle a difference of opinion. It's so serious that twice Paul had to deal with it. And in 1 Corinthians 5, remember there was the man who was sleeping with his mother-in-law. And he says in 1 Corinthians 5, 4, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit and with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, this is, I believe, that bringing it to the church, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. He wanted to win the brother back. The brother was openly, it was known to the body of the the church there that he was doing this thing. Everybody knew about it, but they never dealt with it. And Paul's saying, no, no, you have to deal with it. You can't let that go. There was another situation a little later, 1 Timothy chapter 1, as Paul's writing to Timothy, uh, this charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, having faith and a good conscience, which some having rejected concerning the faith, they have suffered shipwreck, of whom are Herminius and Alexander, whom I deliver to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. People who came to a shipwreck in their faith, where they began to deny the Lord Jesus and cause others to stumble. And he says, no, we had to put them out of the church. The church must be under the authority of God's word. Church discipline does not refer to a group of Christian policemen throwing their weight around. Rather, it means God is exercising his authority in and through a local body to restore one of his erring children, just like you would in a family. Note, only there must be the authority of the word. Uh, Not only must there be the authority of the word, but there must also be prayer. In, In verse 19 here, he says, uh, that we need to agree together. And the word Greek, the Greek word here for agreeing together is our word symphony. The church must agree in prayer as it seeks to discipline the erring member. Uh, it is through prayer and the word that we ascertain the will of the Father. You see, true spiritual unity is a sign that the Lord is working among us when we're praying together. Assuredly, I say to you, verse 18, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So be careful because we are reading the word, we are praying, and we are seeking to do the right thing by the Lord. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. You see, there's a context here. This is not saying, let you and me get together and pray for a million dollars. It's not saying that at all. It's saying in the context when we come together that we pray. And as we're praying, and I I find it so often, maybe you've experienced this as you've been in a small group praying and as you're praying, just like the Lord's putting something in your heart and you're about to say it and then someone else says it. Two Two or more agreeing in the spirit. I think that's really the intent or the heart here. And then he says here in verse 20, for we're two or three are gathered together in my name. I am there in their midst. This is why it's so important for us to gather. The Spirit of the Lord is among his people. Two people is not insignificant any more than one sheep who wanders from the flock is insignificant. 
If two people are gathered in the name of Jesus, he is there in their midst. The church is spiritual. We need to be examining ourselves constantly to make sure we are walking in the faith. You see, there is a beauty and a need for gathering together. Remember in the book of Acts, it says, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Early on, the church immediately began to meet together. So important. Hebrews chapter 10, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. Let us consider in order to stir up uh, love and good works. You see, you have to do this in the context of meeting together. And as much as I love the fact that we have, uh, you know, broadcast services, praise God for that. You can't 100% do services at home and experience what we're talking about here. This is in the context of the believers gathering together. Now, the Spirit of God, of course, can bridge these gaps, but the idea is that we, we gather together, continue reading Hebrews 10, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, that's in person, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Why do we read a psalm together when we gather? Is it dead tradition? No, we come together around the word of God. The psalm is our call to worship. It's bringing us together. The reason we've gathered is to be here in the presence of the Lord. If you've ever been a part of maybe a more liturgical service, sometimes there's things they say together, such as the Apostles' Creed. And those things can have value. Now, those things can become dead and fall flat, but they can have great value as we're there together in unison saying, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven. And he sits on the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there, he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the holy Christian church. I believe in the communion of saints. I believe in the forgiveness of sins and the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Something that perhaps we've lost in our modern churches. Where two or three of gather, are gathered. Jesus is there. So hopefully we will take it seriously when we gather together, whether it's in a home or whether it's here on Sunday morning, Jesus is among his people. Lord, we love you this morning. Thank you for the lessons. Thank you for what you've spoken to our hearts. We love you, Lord, and we bless you. If there be those among us this morning, Lord, who have never trusted in the name of Jesus and your completed work on the cross and the shedding of your blood that has covered our sins, may we just pray along with them this morning that they would invite you to come in and they would give their heart to you, Lord, and come and confess and humble themselves and say, I want to be your servant, Jesus. For those of us this morning who perhaps have been touched in some way that there's been conviction, then may you... Just bring us to restoration this morning. Anytime, Lord, you bring conviction, it's for the purpose of healing and restoration. And Lord, for us, perhaps, as we've gone through this, if there's been hurt from the past that's been brought up by brothers or sisters, then Lord, give us the grace this morning to just forgive and to let it go. 
And Lord, if we need to, then maybe to go speak with them. You're the one who said, if you come to the altar and you there realize your brother has something against you, then you go to that brother or sister. Love, I, Lord, I love how you, you don't let us off. You, you say, if we realize someone's offended us, that we are to go to them. So often we want it to be the other way around. But Lord, you want your church to be pure. You want your church to be holy. You want it to be right. We are a picture of heaven on earth. You're the one who said that judgment begins first in the household of God. And Lord, this morning you have brought a word of correction to us. And may we respond in faith and love and purity and holiness. In your precious and your holy name we pray, Lord. Amen.